podcast where we dip our caps into the blood of our listeners and we ramble on about old school games. In today's episode, we are going to create a fighter in original D&D. As you know, no mortal can run a recap, so I hope you can sit back, listen, and enjoy. In today's episode, we are going to create an episode as per OD&D booklet number one, Men and Magic. We are going to try to do this as close to rules as written as possible, so if I make a mistake, please do feel free to reach out and let me know. Um, but the first thing we're going to do is roll up some ability scores and figure out what our gold pieces are. So depending on what version of D&D you are used to, um, or D&D-like games, um, the order of these ability scores are laid out might be a little bit odd, and the fact that we're doing a 3D6 straight down the line might also be a little bit uh, different. But let's roll them up and see what we get. So the first one is Strength. And I got an 11. Next one is Intelligence. And we have a 16. Next one is Wisdom. Wisdom is a 7. Constitution. Constitution is a 9. Dexterity. Almost lost that dice. Dexterity is a 13. Charisma. Charisma is a 10. And then we roll 3d6 and times it by 10 for our gold. Ooh, that's good. Uh, that is 170 gold, so we are rich. Um, all right, so the reason that strength, intelligence, and wisdom are all at the very beginning, they're all the first rolls you do, is because those were the prime requisite uh, ability scores for the three main classes, being fighter, magic user, and cleric, respectively. The prime requisite um, being higher lets you gain experience faster, thus level up faster. In OD&D, though, your prime requisite wasn't just a single stat. The game realized that you could be a fighter who was also smart or a fighter who was also wise. You weren't just a fighter who was a meathead and had to be incredibly strong in order to be useful. Um, so they added a way that you could modify your relative, uh, sorry, your prime requisite um, without actually having to change your, your scores. This is a rule that... Um, in OD&D got misunderstood by a lot of people, I think, because of later editions, how they've changed this particular rule in later editions. But in OD&D, you didn't modify any of your stats. You could just borrow from another stat to boost um, your prime requisite. So in this case, if we looked at our scores, uh, we had a 16 in intelligence. By all accounts, we should probably be a magic user rather than a fighter, but I want to build a smart fighter, I guess, in this case. So... We start off with a strength of 11. Um, that's where our prime requisite would start. If we didn't modify it, we would have no bonus to bonus or penalty to gaining experience. But luckily, uh, as folks in Boston would say, we are wicked smart, and we can use our init at a two-for-one basis for every point above nine, meaning that our 16 would become a seven, seven points above nine. You divide it by two, you get three points. So we can take three points and add it to our prime requisite score. Wisdom, it's below a 9, so we can't do anything with that. So we have effectively a 14, 11 from the strength that we've got, and then that intelligence got converted to three additional points um, that we can add to our prime requisite. We fall just short of the 15-point um, cutoff that we would need to reach 10% extra XP, but we do get 5% extra XP. So our smart fighter is going to be gaining experience a little bit quicker. Our constitution, it's pretty average, uh, and we have a 60 to 90% chance of survival. This is something that is not explained anywhere in that first booklet of what that actually means. However, in first edition and later on, um, they kind of explain it to be 
um, that that 60 to 90 percent chance of survival is related to being raised from the dead or coming back from being polymorphed anything that's like a major system shock to you um, our dex is high, high enough that we will fire missile weapons at plus one and our charisma of 10 lets us have up to four hirelings at average loyalty our intelligence also grants us the ability to speak several languages we'll be able to speak our common tongue our alignment language and in this case let's just say our uh, fighter is a lawful fighter and up to six more creature languages, which could be pretty incredibly useful depending on how the campaign was to play out. And as I mentioned, we have 170 gold, which is amazing. We're basically rich right off the uh, bat. So let's go and spend some of that money. We're a fighter, so right off the bat, I want to get our weapon and armor figured out. One of the interesting things about original D&D is that all the weapons do the same damage. They do 1d6, no matter whether you're using a two-handed sword or a dagger. The cost of the weapons, however, is dramatically different. And this is one of the first things that most people would house rule or change when it came to OD&D was that uh, you're not getting anything extra for the extra gold you spend in your weapon. You're still doing that 1d6. Um, many refs might allow you to use your weapon in a creative way or in a narrative way that makes sense. So maybe if you've got a big axe, you can also use that to chop down a door or um, you know different things like that. But... Um, yeah, that is something that was originally set without any whole lot of explanation of why a dagger does the same damage as a longsword. But since we have a high dex, and I think our fighter is smart, I'm going to give him enough stuff so that he could be effective both at range and um, at, up close and personal. So first thing we're going to do is get a sword, because for me, the fighter's got to have a sword. Uh, that's going to cost 10 gold pieces. We're going to buy a longbow for 40 gold pieces we're going to buy a quiver and 40 arrows it comes with 20 we're going to buy an additional 20 for 15 gold pieces altogether and then we're going to spend another five gold pieces on some silver tipped arrows we're going to get plate mail helmet and shield uh, for 70 gold pieces uh, we're going to get a backpack for five we're going to buy a week's worth of iron rations for 15 we'll get a skin of wine for one some torches, a 10-foot pole, 50 feet of rope, and 12 spikes uh, for one gold for each of those. And after all that, we end up with five gold left <laughs> to his name, which is kind of why we have to dive into a dungeon and start adventuring. Um, we're, we started off rich, and we aren't anymore. Um, but now that we have all this equipment, uh, the first thing we have to go is, hey, can we actually carry it? So we have to look at the, the weight of this equipment. Uh, we look at it in coin weight. Um, the armor is weighs about 750 coins, 50 for our helmet, another 150 for our shield. The sword is 50 coins worth of weight. The arrows are 50 coins worth of weight. Oh, sorry, yeah, the sword is 50. The bow and arrows are 50. Um, all the other items in the backpack work out roughly to 80. The wine is 30. And then with the five gold pieces we have left, uh, brings us up to around uh, 1,165 coin worth of weight on us which puts us at a, the movement rate of an armored footman, which would be six inches on a map, so six inches, uh, so six squares if you're doing it off of a grid. Um, so that would be, if it's five foot squares, it'd be 30 feet. If it's more, you'd, you know, you do the math on that um, per turn. And then it would let us haul another 330-ish uh, gold um, from the dungeon before we would be moving at half speed. So we know how much uh equipment we have we know how much it weighs we know how much we can go into a dungeon and pull out um we know what our ability scores are uh we are a first level fighter which is known as a veteran fighter we're looking to make him a warrior by leveling up to level two 
we need 2000 XP for that. Um, given that we now know, you know, how much we can carry, we can realize that's going to take a few dungeon runs to get done. Um, let's find out how much health we have. We're going to roll one uh, D6 and add one to it. And stop spinning. There we go. And we've got a total of four X. Sorry, four. Uh, we rolled a four, so we've got a total of five HP. Uh, we're rolling uh, with uh, plate armor and a shield, which is that brings us down to AC2. You'll notice that it does not mention anything about the helmet. Um, <laughs> the helmet is something you can listen to my previous episode on uh, and find out some more on that. But um, yeah, we're at AC2. Um, that's pretty good, though, because most of the creatures we're going to run into in the first level or so of the dungeon are going to need, like, probably have to roll at least a 15 or so to hit us. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's not bad. Like I said, the helmet is a special case when it comes to OD&D. You can listen to the last episode. There'll also be some voicemails at the end of this one, just to, something to keep you interested at the end of this. Um, so finally, uh, we would make note of our saving throws. However, if you're cut, running short on room on your on your character sheet, or if you're using like a uh, a index card like I normally would do, you don't really need to write down your saving throws. They aren't that complicated. You could have a standard saving throw chart for everybody, um, or you just let the DM handle it. Because often in OD and D, the DM would actually roll your saving throws for you. Um, so now we've got all of that done. The last thing is probably the hardest thing you have to do when creating a character, and that's to come up with a name. Um, I'm going to use a generator because I am terrible at coming up with names for characters, and the generator has come up with the name Asmund. So we now have a character who's ready to go on an adventure. Uh, let me know if I missed anything in this process, but I think it's a pretty solid character. Probably has a decent chance of survival. So Godspeed to Asmund. All right. As I hinted to earlier, last episode we talked about helmets and I had a few call-ins about it, so I'm going to play those now and then we'll come back with my final thoughts. Hey there, Daniel from Manus Keep calling in about helmets. I think this is interesting um, because I always just assume somebody in armor has a helmet on, but I have played with especially younger players, and I mean younger meaning like in their 30s, not like kids. <laughs> uh, you know, being that I'm almost 50. Um, and they draw their characters, they look at things, and they don't consider that characters would have a helmet on, even in full plate, which I think is kind of silly, but again, it's a fantasy thing. But I always make an assumption they have a helmet on. And as far as the, so I wouldn't have any surprise thing or bonuses or whatever. As far as the why is it in the book and why shouldn't it be a cash sink or whatever, think about OD&D and what you encounter, things like oozes, rust monsters, stuff like that. You know how many green slimes have fallen on somebody's head and plate mail and they need to buy a new helmet? I mean, that's the reason why the helmets are in the book, in my mind. I don't think you need to have a special rule to make sure armor fall apart. You need to have monsters that make your armor fall apart. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, I think this this Reddit thing that you looked at in your in your podcast and just this, this conversation, which is super interesting, is one of those things about gaming and about D&D &D and what makes it awesome, actually, and also makes it something that we're constantly tinkering with because you can tinker with it. And I think that people love to make house rules. And oftentimes house rules are made about things that the system itself already takes care of if you actually play the game the way that it was kind of written. Now, if you don't do that and you don't use slimes, you don't use oozes, you don't use rust monsters, and, you know, people aren't taking their helmets off and losing them, then, you know, sure, make a rule that the helmets get destroyed to make people spend money. I guess that's fine. I don't see a problem with that. I just think that a lot of times we make rules that where they don't even need to happen. It can just be play style to make that happen without specific rules. Also, I don't believe in crits for OSR games. I'm not a crit person for that. 
although I, I do use them in astonishing swordsman sources have for so uh anyways awesome hey jason here just want to say i don't mess with helmets um not that i run very much d20 fantasy or you know especially osr but you know i think the mechanics of D, D combat are abstract enough that it's not worth worrying about these things even though our good friend daniel norton over the bandits keep hates the usage die i can see incorporating the usage die into armor degradation and into you know need to repair your armor i can see some use in that because i do like the idea of your armor deteriorating so after you do a battle you roll to see you know how bad the armor's how well the armor's standing up but but i don't think i'd mess the helmets because i think that's a, a level of attention that's not warranted by the abstractness of the combat Hey, Ricard here. Uh, really liked the episode on helmets. Uh, made me wonder because in Cairn, which is uh, my go-to game for the OSR, uh, the game written by Yochai Gal, um, there's a maximum of plus three armor, right? And if you have like chainmail and a shield, you already have plus three. So having a helmet, which is plus one, seems kind of like it doesn't do anything. But the thing is, and I think it's written in the rules, like you're supposed to use it as like a narrative um, protection, right? So if if how I ruled it is since it's a hack of into the odds and there are no two hit rolls, only damage, I ruled that if you have a helmet, you can choose to, if the damage done to you is the maximum of the die, you can force a re-roll of the damage uh, from your enemy. But you will all, but you do like... Um, lose the the helmet uh nice thanks daniel i completely agree that people have this image of a hero in their head maybe it's a hollywood movie thing um where they want to see the face and they just don't even think about the helmet um i've always considered the helmet to be part of the armor as well but as you're right for narrative protection from falling from objects or slimes that makes complete sense um and it's a good way to also destroy it for the same reason um, I also agree with you about playing the game as written uh, before you start creating house rules and just creating house rules to, <clears throat> sorry, my voice is going, creating house rules to correct pain points uh, rather than just doing something because it sounded cool. Jason, usage dice would make sense for armor uh, being worn away and having to be replaced. It's just a matter of how often you would roll it. Um, it's one of the areas where I think usage dice is actually pretty good. Um, I hate usage time when it comes to inventory tracking but for things like this i think that's a, a clever use for them as well uh ricardo your rule about re-rolling max damage is very similar to the house rule i had mentioned in that episode about confirming the critical hit so that's pretty interesting that you know different game systems all together and very similar rule um and you're on the same page as daniel in terms of using it for narrative uh, usage you know as far as things falling on you um, so that's really cool i hadn't really considered that when i was recording it but that's an excellent point so, all right, folks, that wraps up this episode of the Red Caps podcast. I hope you enjoyed, you learned something, and you're eager to come back for more. If you'd like to head over to anchor.fm slash the Red Caps, you can leave me a voicemail, or you can send me an email at feedback at the redcaps.net. You can also find me over at Twitter at the redcapsnet, and I hope to hear from you soon. Thanks very much for listening, and remember, never let your caps dry out. Stay safe, have fun. We'll talk again soon. Take care.